Today on The Black Goat, we talk about people using the replicability crisis to sow doubt in science, and a letter about negotiating for a partner with a non-academic job. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm so excited to be back together again with Alexa Tullett and Samin <laughs> Vizier. We've been on a hiatus for, I think, all of August because um, we had some yeah, scheduling difficulties with travel and all that. So I'm super excited to be back together with you guys. Same. Me too. I miss and you, Sanjay. I miss you too, Alexa. <laughs> but fortunately, I got I got a little taste of Alexa because you were on another podcast, Two Psychologists, Four Beers, which Mickey Inslicht and Yoel Inbar host, mm-hmm. and they interviewed you. You were the, the guest of honor on their podcast, which was a lot of fun to listen to. It was uh, really fun to be on their podcast. I, I always feel like, um, well, always, I'm rarely in the position where I feel like I'm being interviewed, and I'm, I think, slightly more comfortable on the interviewer side of things um so but it was like really fun to um be on the other side and i want to hear the outtakes i want to hear the cut material because <laughs> <laughs> they they actually cut I, like we hardly ever cut anything and they but they they do the thing which i think is more usual in in podcasting or at least i think a decent number of people do where you record more than you're actually going to use and then you kind of cut stuff it sounds like so much work <laughs> I think it is a lot of work. I think they put a lot more work into their <laughs> podcast than we do. Um, but they need we're to efficient. because, you know, like Mickey, you know, says all this inappropriate stuff that they have to cut out. <laughs> I liked how they, they blamed that on the drinking that they do. They're, they're like... <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite parts was when Mickey asked you if you, like, regret things after you record a podcast. And I, th- I don't remember what you said, but I think you were, like, not really or something. And Mickey was yeah. like, I regret so many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting individual difference. Like, I think it's he- pretty rare that I walk away from something thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. He um he has coping mechanisms for that. I remember when I was in grad school, he told us that sometimes he would get Naomi, his wife, to read over his emails before he sent them so that yeah. he wasn't, like, too impulsive. I definitely get people to read over my emails, but, mm. yeah, so that, yeah, wow. but in person. So, so all the embarrassing stuff that Mickey would have edited out, now you're going to reveal on our <laughs> yeah, podcast. Right. <laughs> Just kidding, Mickey. We love you. Um, That's true. Uh, yeah, that, it was it was interesting too. Like I I did not realize. Like people have made jokes about awkward pauses a couple times. I didn't realize when when Yoel brought it up that that's like now our signature move. I know. Pauses. And what I didn't say. You guys was are like, stealing that... my signature move. It's been my signature move my whole life. <laughs> yeah. What I didn't tell them was that I like cut half of them out. Like there are actually way more awkward pauses. <laughs> Just just keep enough in to keep our listeners interested. Mm. Yeah, apparently that's our thing. Suspense, right? Yeah. Anticipation. Well, it's, you know, like I, yeah, I because no, none of us really is the like facilitator person. Like I listen to a lot of podcasts with and, and a lot with multiple people. And there's often like a quote unquote host who like moves the conversation along. But I always feel like I think often I think you might have said this on, on their podcast. Often what it is is we've kind of finished a topic. But nobody wants to just like take charge and be like, all right, now we're moving on to the next thing. So we're all doing 
the thing you would do in real life, which is you're right. just sitting there sort of like Looking trying to read everyone's nonverbals, uh-huh. but that doesn't really come across on a podcast. <laughs> I want to know if they think that you're clearly the most socially skilled person because they know all of us in real life or if listeners <laughs> of the podcast would also come to the same conclusion. The problem with this whole socially skilled thing is that like when people listen to the podcast they now have really high expectations of my <laughs> conversational skills in real life yeah. which is i'm not comfortable with yeah <laughs> that's, a that's true samina and i self-handicapped a little bit that kind of helps right but it i think just like. the yeah. fact of having a podcast makes people think that i know how to talk to people like i think people are somewhat disappointed when they talk to me in real life <laughs> <laughs> You could have just that last part is all you really needed to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so speaking of Samin in real life, so I think I think it might have been the last episode you were just about to jet off to Australia. Um, so, so tell us about your trip to Australia. So you're you're moving there in like a year, right? Yeah, but, uh, a little less um, now. Yeah, yeah. You were you were just there for like a visit. So what? Yeah, what, what for were a month. the highlights? It was winter there. Um, it's it's really interesting how hard it is to keep track of which things are backwards compared to here and which things aren't. So like they drive on the left side, but like, and it is winter. And my dad, we were talking about like apartments in in Melbourne and stuff. And my dad was like, oh yeah, so you want like a north facing apartment for sunlight, and you want it to be east facing because the sun sets in the east, right? And I was like, no, 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 north nope. is right, but the sun doesn't <laughs> set in the east. <laughs> and like all these things, it's like. Yeah, very hard to keep track. And, like, the time difference is so hard to keep track. Like, even now, you know, I have a partner in Australia. We talk all the time, and we have to make schedules to talk. And, like, even last night, like, it took me so long to remember that, like, his Thursday is my Wednesday. And I'm, like, seven hours ahead, but actually behind. And it gets so confusing. And, yeah, the scheduling meetings is going to be a nightmare. Like, there's so many things you don't realize how north american centric or sometimes like just north american europe centric Mm -hmm. things are but like yeah there's just no way to have a meeting with people in europe people in north america and people in australia and i feel like it's probably the case that the australians often just stay up till midnight or get up at 5 a.m or whatever um because they're often in the minority numerically Mm -hmm. but also yeah i've been noticing other things like when i read papers now and they say the participants were from the midwest i'm like the midwest of what of what country like why are you assuming (laughs) I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, duh, like we've known this forever, but it's really interesting to have my eyes open to all these things now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you did you encounter any deadly animals when you were in Australia? No, but the day after I left, there was not deadly, but a gigantic non-poisonous spider. So I heard this story about these spiders. Do you want to hear it? Wait, yes, maybe I told yes. it. Did I tell you already? Um, I don't think so. Don't so think there's these spiders so. called the huntsman spiders that are huge, like many Wait, inches you need to in diameter describe it. i don't know yeah. how big they get but like at least six inches listeners, in diameter Samin, maybe more samine just held up her hands at the size of a dinner plate so yeah i think that's <laughs> i think they get that big their and they're body really fuzzy no with their legs how big is their body i don't know uh give me just a big. guess <laughs> <laughs> uh, the size of like two tennis balls one tennis ball between one and two tennis balls i don't know okay Jesus. that's a, that's insane. maybe one one is maybe more accurate i'm way out of my depths here like i know very little about huntsman spiders but i know <laughs> that they are not poisonous but they move really fast and they like to be between tight spaces and oh, so there's Jesus. this phenomenon whereby they kill oh many God. people despite not being poisonous because in the summer people roll their windows down their car when they park to let air in 
the spider crawls in, gets between the visor and the roof of the car, and then people get oh in their car God. and start driving so and put the visor down. <laughs> and these spiders move super, super fast, and so the person crashes. So they actually kill a lot of people despite not being poisonous. Anyway. Oh, my God. My partner found one of these I spiders am... in his shed right after I left. I am so sorry I asked. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've I'm had nervous. the thought that I could die by a cockroach being in my car or something like that. Oh, then, really? Yeah. I've been trying to train myself to think of spiders as like cute animals. I love animals so much. And if I just think of them as like, like, I like mammals mostly. So if I just think of them as like, they're kind of like a mammal, Some like especially the really big ones. <laughs> yeah. And you always like the bigger animals. Yeah. yeah. So you should like right. the biggest spiders. Right. So if I see a spider, I'm going to have an implementation intention. If I see a spider, <laughs> then I will think cute furry animal that doesn't want to hurt me. Yeah. I have to say, I when I was a kid, I was kind of afraid of spiders. And I've, I've like not super, but just sort of like maybe slightly above average afraid of spiders. And Oregon has tons of spiders, mm-hmm. not big ones like you're describing, but they and they come into your house. And I've kind of just gotten used to them. Like I'll I'll see a spider around my house and and sometimes I'll like and I, I almost never squish them. So I, I try to catch them and release them outside. And sometimes I'll see one. I'll just be can't be bothered. And I'll be like, eh, it's just going to catch bugs or whatever. It's fine. Let it let it be there. But uh, I don't I don't know that I could get used to dinner plate sized spiders in my car visor that yeah would, when i was i, I was talking to always terrify me a kid who was afraid of beetles and so i was trying to get her not to be afraid and so i like named the beetle and i told her it was my friend and stuff like that so maybe i do the same with spiders <laughs> like as soon as i meet them personalize them give them a name and a backstory and a family <laughs> i think we should just do immersion therapy i'm just gonna throw you into a bathtub full of spiders <laughs> I mean, they're so big, immersion probably only takes one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but now connecting our two topics, speaking of other podcasts and me going to Australia, um, the Hurts, Everything Hurts podcast guys made a little video for me about Melbourne, which was very, very sweet of them. So we should link to that in the show notes too. Oh yeah, for sure. Melbourne, right? Yeah, Melbourne. That's uh, Melbourne. You're going to... Where that that's how we're going to know you've you've acculturated is when when you start saying Melbourne. Yeah. (laughs) Or, or move to New Zealand, as they suggested, yeah, right, right. one or the other. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, well, should we, uh, should we do our letter? Yes, let's do our letter. Awesome. Dear the Black Goat, I'm just starting my second year as an assistant professor in a mid-sized city, population around 300,000, and I'm very happy at my university. My partner moved with me and gave up his job to do so, which I am incredibly grateful for. We spent three years in different cities during my postdoc. We like our new city a lot and have a nice group of friends here. But one big thing that has not been going well is my partner's job search. He has had a really hard time finding something full-time in his field, IT support, that is benefits eligible. There are a lot of low-paid consulting positions that don't offer health insurance, and it's over $500 per month to add him to mine. He is not an academic, and we didn't think it would be this hard. I don't know what I could have negotiated for to help him, and everyone I know either has a partner who works here at the university or could keep their job and work remotely. I've spoken with my department chair about this a few times. Our last conversation was more productive, but still I have not seen any tangible positive outcomes. He's even had a few interviews at my university, but no offers. Do you have any advice for us? Sincerely, Anonymous. 
I'm hoping that you have advice. <laughs> you too. Well, I think, I'm, I'm not really sure what advice I would give. I don't person. have advice, but I like this letter because I do think we talk so much about the two body problem with two academics, but I think right. this, got, this has got to be common and we don't talk about it very much. So Sanjay, mm-hmm. answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's really interesting because I, I, I feel like you do see, sometimes see, like I've, I've seen two partner you know, negotiations where somebody was not in a traditional academic department, but sometimes, you know, where someone's partner ends up doing like administrative work or something like that. I mean, I, I feel like one, this is maybe a little, well, it, it's, it might be too late, but it might also be pre-future. Um, just in general, like, you know, the time you have the most leverage is before you've accepted an offer, right? And the other time you have the most leverage is when you have an outside offer. So, you know, without without knowing, I mean, you know, what exactly the department chair or others have done, it's hard to say, but often that will, one, motivate the people that you're immediately talking to, you know, the prospect that you either might not come or if you're there that you might leave, that'll motivate them to work harder. But two, it also, even if they're working as hard as they can, it gives them leverage to go to somebody else, right? So, you know, it's it's hard to say in the general case because just it's not always possible to do something. But, you know, if if uh, it, it, it does sometimes happen that, you know, someone goes to someone somewhere else in the university and says, look, we're going to lose this great assistant professor. If we can't find their job, a job for their partner, their partner works in IT and, and they go to the provost and the provost goes to the IT, you know, the, the vice president for IT or whatever it is. And, you know, they, they work out a deal like these kinds of things can happen um and so you know i it's and and it is one of those things where people like every university has it universities have tend to have pretty substantial amounts of it so it's not like they're it's not like you're asking for something that doesn't exist at the university um but it's it's tough and it, it depends i guess specifically on what the partner does because it may be that what the university has might require, like they might be able to come up with something that kind of relates to their skill sets, but isn't what they do or exactly what they want. So like I've, I've, you know, my, my partner and I have, have because my partner is a journalist um, and, and, you know, this has been an issue. So we were in kind of a similar boat when we moved to, to Oregon. Um, she ended up going back to school and getting her master's from Oregon, but um, you know, there aren't like universities don't hire journalists to do journalism they do hire pr people um at, but that would have been a pretty substantial it, pr and journalism have this kind of interesting relationship where there's a lot of overlap in skill set but it's a very different kind of work and and it would have in her case required like you know a pretty big sort of shift in in you know sort of her goals and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing um but so so it's possible that there may be something involving IT. But yeah, I guess my my first suggestion would would be, you know, to to be looking at how like, you know, how you can get leverage and and you know an outside offer can be a way to create leverage for better or for worse. Do you think that if her partner or this person's partner got an outside offer somewhere else, not outside, but like got found a job somewhere else, and this person said. I'm like thinking about either following my partner or looking for jobs in that area now that my partner has an offer there. Like, would would that put pressure on the university 
if it's not an offer for the letter writer, but an offer for their partner? That's a good question. Yeah, so so I think that's a really good question. I think the um, I think it, my guess would be that yes, but not as strongly. And the mm-hmm. the reason I say that is I think one just um, having that outside offer sends a signal especially to people that it might be further away. Like like your department chair might know how awesome you are, but to a dean, they're taking your department chair's mm-hmm. word how awesome you are. Whereas if the person has an outside offer, then the dean's like, oh, somebody else is willing to give this person money for how awesome they are. So it's more, it's it makes it more real to people that are further away in the decision-making chain. And then I think also that people people in academia tend to, and it's kind of empirically true that people tend not to leave academia um, and people know how hard it is to get jobs in academia. And so if, if you don't have an outside offer, you're saying I would move for my partner and potentially give up being in academia, people may not believe that as much. Um, so yeah, so I, my, this is just hunch and intuition. I don't, I don't know that I've like directly seen a like comparison play out but my my guess just having seen how like administrators talk about this stuff is that the the academic person in this relationship having an outside offer would be the strongest thing right. but that any threat of departure if it's credible would have a chance of getting people's attention but i think it has to be credible which means you have to be at least seriously considering following through with right. it or or it has to appear that you would seriously follow through with it so yeah yeah, I've heard of a lot of people in situations where the university says, oh, we've tried everything, there's nothing we can do. And then when there's an outside offer for the academic person, their tune changes quite a bit. So I do I think... Oh, there is something we can yeah. do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I do yeah. think even if they're saying they've exhausted every option and there's not nothing else they can try, that, that doesn't mean that's true. And it mm-hmm. might be that the only thing that will unlock some of those doors is either an outside offer or a credible threat of trying for and plausibly getting an outside offer yeah and you know it's it's often the case that the people that you're directly speaking with they may be when they say like when your department chair says i've tried everything i can if, if they said that mm-hmm. that may be true of the department chair right, right? It, it may be that that what they need is something to help open doors for them because they're kind of a go-between often mm-hmm. in these negotiations this is true when you're being initially hired as well as for these kind of like during your career where the the department chair is representing the university to you, and they're also representing you to the university. Um, and and so when they're coming back to you and saying this stuff, like they that that may be if they if they're telling you I've tried everything I can, they may be serious. They may not have thought of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and they're also not going to tell they, you no yeah. if you threaten to leave. I'm going to let you go. Or, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, I guess the other, right, the other thing that, yeah, um, I mean, the, the letter writer says he's had a hard time finding something full-time that's benefits eligible, they're low-paid consulting that don't offer health insurance, and it's over 500 per month to add into mine. So, so this is obviously not as good as getting your partner a full-time job, but it, it may be that for example, if there were consulting that they might be able to cover the either through a raise or directly to cover the benefits issue or something like that, right? So mm-hmm. these are 
and they, these things can be really complicated because universities often have a lot of weird rules around you know what they can and can't pay for and again this is also one of those things where like having something credible might make things happen but that would be like for example if the partner could do consulting or if they could be doing like IT work for somebody's lab or for a research institute or something and the department might pick up some of that cost or pick up if it's if it's mm. done on freelance or, or consulting or a non-benefits basis might be able to cover the benefits or something like that that would be another thing to potentially ask about yeah i wish i wish there was a better answer to this this is this is something you know there's and i mean we've talked about these dual career issues before there's good research suggesting these hit women harder than men and that's that may be something to some people unfortunately some people at universities just aren't impressed by those arguments but people you know if there are people that care about gender equity i mean i guess that's another thing to bring up is that if you're looking for people in a position to make something happen talking to universities you know whatever it's called at your university at my university it's the division of equity and inclusion i think dei but um talking to, to the people in that group sometimes they have funds available for these kinds of things sometimes they can bring leverage or pressure to make things happen um uh so bringing this up as a sort of equity issue can also help with the framing but yeah unfortunately these kinds of issues they suck for everybody and they tend to to i think hit some groups of people like women and, and other groups harder than than others i feel like that's a downer way to end our letter yeah <laughs> but i think it is an objectively yeah yeah i agree unfair situation mm-hmm. it is yeah well this is i mean I, th- I feel like we've been saying this a lot maybe this is, should just be a standing invitation i would be super interested if if somebody listening has been in this situation in any of the roles whether it's as the faculty whether it's as the non-academic partner whether it's as the person making things happening making things happen if, if you have been in this position and and you have uh things that we haven't thought of or other insights um please let us know letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com we could pass those along to our letter writer or we could read them on a future episode um and if you're listening and you're on twitter and you want to share stuff on twitter you can tweet at blackcoatpod which uh, we often when we get cool stuff we try to retweet it so that our followers on twitter can see it um, you can reach us. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash blackcoatpod. There's not as much discussion on Facebook as there. There's hard, very little discussion on Facebook relative to Twitter, which maybe says something about our listeners. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have a super active Facebook group, but you can change that. Well, also, I think um, you might be the only one of the hosts that's active on Facebook anymore. I've basically stopped <laughs> using it. I don't know if the, how much that, mm-hmm. that drives traffic, but at least that's true. two of us are active on Twitter. One of us is active on Facebook. That might make a difference. And, and Alexa is, is active in the real world. Instagram. Uh, right. I don't know. I, I love that. On, I don't know if that, being active on Instagram is really comparable I to think, being active yeah. on Facebook and Twitter. We should post more on our Black Goat Instagram. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Yeah. We. I feel like, uh, yeah, I, because for some reason I feel more free to post things to the Twitter account than the Instagram, maybe because it's pictures and I just like, I'm like, why would I post a picture of just me who gives a shit? Like, so when, it's like when we're together, it's fun to post pictures of two or three of us. Oh, but. I'm going to have pictures. My colleagues who live in town are going to have goats in their yard <laughs> to get rid of the weeds. So I will be ready with my camera. That's oh, great. Oh, definitely. 
All right. Keep an eye out, listeners, for goat pictures on our Instagram. It's Instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. Um, yeah, and if you enjoy the podcast and you rate us on iTunes, that helps people find us, um, and it uh, uh, helps us know what people think, so feel free to do that as well. Um, yeah. Uh, so I guess for our main topic, um, this was inspired by a letter someone wrote us in and and suggested this topic and I I thought it was a really interesting one it's something I feel like I've had conversations with people about I've certainly seen it discussed by other people um and the sort of uh um the question really or the the issue the topic that we wanted to talk about was people using the replication crisis or people using bits and pieces of discussions about credibility, about open science, et cetera, as reasons to distrust science. Mm-hmm. And, to distrust science. Yeah. And then also in the letter, um, the letter writer focused specifically on sort of like using those arguments to sort of debunk the research underlying like diversity initiatives and things like that. So sort of like a specific category of policies or initiatives that are sort of rooted in social psyche um, stuff. So there's this sort yeah. of broader question about, um, yeah, raising skepticism about science generally and also skepticism about uh, like diversity related stuff that is rooted in social psych research. Yeah. yeah. One thing I find really interesting in these conversations is that I often see people writing or speaking in a way that starts with the assumption that science or a specific science should be trusted and deserves trust. Right. And right. I, I've actually had this even in like manuscripts that I've handled that are about public perception of science. And like, yeah, they talk about how like we shouldn't do this because it undermines trust or whatever. And I'm like, wait, you're assuming we deserve trust. <laughs> like, yeah. let's back yeah. up a little bit and then ask like, right. should the public be allowed to decide how much they trust us <laughs> like yeah right and yeah and, and there's sometimes like may we or a specific part of science deserve low trust yeah i have the same reaction i think there's also this um this idea that we should be trying to increase public trust but the suggestions for how to do that are not always like by making science more trustworthy there's yeah. like like often people will suggest ways of increasing public trust that go through other mechanisms besides making science better, which I also think is like uh, putting the car before the horse or something like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, on the, so on the general issue, yeah, there's a, I think a really important, but subtle to some people, subtle distinction that you're making Alexa, which is, yeah, like there, there does need to be a communication strategy, but the, 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 you know, one approach is to say like, we're going to tell people they should trust us. Yeah. Right. And then the other, approach, or we're going to hide gonna... things from people so that they trust us. Which... <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. That, and then the other, the other kind of approach is to say, we're going to do the things that ought to make people trust us. And then the communication strategy is to tell us yeah. about the things mm-hmm. that are the legitimate bases for trust. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, you, you don't necessarily. I mean, maybe you, you know, tie the bow and say, and this is why you should trust us at the end. But. Uh, um, the thrust of it is not to say trust us. The thrust of it is to say we're doing X, Y, and Z, where X, Y, and Z are the things that, and then, and, and that, because what that does is then that makes you accountable for actually doing X, Y, and Z. So if you're, if you're, you know, if you're lying about doing the things that deserve trust, uh, you can't build that kind of communication strategy without getting caught. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, what did you guys think of the March for Science? 
Because I think I struggled with this issue with that. Like, was it a march uh-huh. for, like, rah, rah, trust science no matter what? Was it a march for, like, let's support science and its aim to be a reliable, knowledge-producing endeavor? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this because when I talk to people about my skepticism about science, especially people who, um, like, don't know that much about my views on the subject or they don't know that much about the subject in general, I I have a desire to be careful about saying that, like, I believe in science as a way of learning about the world, but I just think that right now we're doing a poor job or a poorer job than we could be doing. Um so maybe if you see things like the March for Science as like a a march for an idealized version of a methodology or something like that, then I can get behind it. But I do find like that those things get conflated with we want to make sure that like people are fans of science and they trust science. And like when they hear that, you know, that a journalist is reporting on a scientific paper, they should trust that paper and trust the finding and that kind of stuff makes me nervous, of course, because mm-hmm. I don't think that kind of trust should be, um, like, taken for granted. Yeah, there's science in principle and then science in practice. And then there's also the problem of, like, science isn't one thing. So, like, who gets, even if you say science in general is a good thing that we should support, like, who gets to be under that umbrella? Like, do the social sciences, do other people claiming to be doing mm-hmm. science who aren't officially a discipline? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm sure I've talked about this before and I know I think both of you are familiar with Skip Lupia's article about why should the public trust science and and why should the public support science and and I really I've always really liked the argument he makes which is you know he starts by saying in the public sphere in the marketplace of ideas there's all these different people making claims and what distinguishes scientific claims from some of the other kinds of claims and and you know people making claims on the basis of authority or making the claims on the basis of divine revelation or whatever and and he says that what makes a scientific claim distinct maybe not unique but distinct at least is that we we don't say here's this claim and you should believe me because i have a degree or i have expertise or whatever we say the form of scientific claim is here's the claim and here's the evidence in the chain of reasoning that led me to the claim, and you can see it for yourself. And in some ways, that puts us in, a, in, in some rhetorical context that does put science at a disadvantage, right? When it's like, there are some rhetorical contexts where a simpler and more straight and direct and less contingent message really does have a stronger effect. There are some kinds of communication where people are processing it heuristically and they're, you know, uh, um, and and they're willing to trust authorities and all these other things. And so so I think there is this temptation to want to, by scientists, even even people acting in good faith, to want to adopt that that simpler rhetorical mode and to just say, trust us because I, you know, I'm the expert here or trust, you know, trust us because like I worked my ass off going through graduate school or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and and so so I, I totally get that. And there are there are, I think, sometimes when like that's what you have to fall back on. Um, but I think it's 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 important to not 
to really be careful not to try to rest on that too much because that's not really what distinguishes us. And if we start adopting that, other people have a better claim to those kinds of modes of rhetoric, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I was elected to this position is actually, for just simple trust me, is in some contexts a better basis than I'm a scientist, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know... Um, I, I won an election, so climate change isn't real. Like, if, if we're just trying to make the, like, believe my authority, well, that's kind of, a cl- that's a pretty good claim to authority in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like, people elected me, you know. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so, so, so I feel like it does. But then that, you know, trying to adopt this more complex thing, because it's inherent in that form of argument that people are allowed to argue back with you. That's the whole point. They're allowed to question your evidence and your reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to be willing to engage in that. And that opens up, I think, what the letter writer is talking about, which is then when people do that in bad faith, when they do it selectively, when they do it, uh, um, you know, in ways that superficially look like they're really engaging, but they aren't really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my most common response when people say, like, what if people use your claims or evidence or whatever as a as ammunition or fodder for their anti-science, you know, critiques, like inappropriate science critiques or whatever. Like, um, I think my, my response is like, well, the counterfactual is not like, we could just not tell people this. The counterfactual is we could hide it. And then people would eventually find out that we hid this. So like that looks much worse. And so if we think about like the deeper ask we're making of the public is not trust the specific claim. It's trust us to be honest with you and be transparent and correct ourselves when we were wrong. Mm-hmm. And so if they find out that we were violating that deeper promise, then I think that we're much more fucked than if we just um, make a claim that make that the evidence that we present in that claim, like show that there's evidence of low replicability mm-hmm. in social psych. Yeah, sure. They'll lose some trust in us. Of course. I don't want to deny that. But A, maybe they should lose trust in us. Maybe they should be allowed to decide if they want to lose trust in us. And yeah. B, like, the yeah, the counterfactual is not that those data never existed. Those data now exist. So we have to decide what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about the... So there was a specific example or a set of examples in the letter. Would that be yeah, sure. helpful to talk about? Mm-hmm. Should I... I pulled up the letter. Should yeah, I just, that's... like, kind of read that section? Yeah, that's great. So, so it's they... It's a very the, the... eloquent letter. I was, yeah, I was thinking really cool like letter. we should have read the letter, so good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I'm going to read part of it. Uh, um, uh, so this person saying, I, uh, I, uh, so they want, they're talking specifically about diversity training and initiatives. They say, I work for a big tech company, and those findings, meaning social psych findings, are very frequently used to justify diversity training and initiatives. And then they say, this is, I think, kind of the heart of of this issue. Uh, Another thing I've noticed is people who oppose increasing diversity using the language and results of the open science movement to attack those initiatives. I'm conflicted. On the one hand, it's probably true that look at your IAT score for evidence of unconscious bias at work is a bad argument. However, unconscious bias is likely a real thing which people need to deal with. Stereotype threat results may not replicate. That's that's pending, by the way, as a broad statement. That's I don't think we can say that that's true in general. There have been some instances. But um, also, I think it's very much an open question. Anyway, this is me editorializing. Okay. Stereotype threat results may not replicate, but constantly reminding people of negative stereotypes about them is still likely undermining. It's such a common thing that I've had people tell me they think the replication movement is mostly aimed at defending racism and misogyny. Um... 
What do you think are the responsibilities of people in the open science movement to try not to let their work become ammunition for people who want to do bad things with it? So I, I had, you know, this isn't exactly, this is sort of related, but, but I, you know, I had the experience of, um, this was maybe, was this two years ago now? Uh, um, I had a Twitter thread go viral where I was uh, critiquing implicit bias training Mm-hmm. Um, that that I had had to go through as part of uh, a search committee, and I, you know, my my views on that are complex because actually there was part of the training that that I thought was quite good, but but the sort of the the idea, the the broader idea that like implicit bias training is going to make our hiring process more fair, et cetera. And so I, I had this Twitter thread, and it went viral. And what was interesting looking at my mentions as this thing was going viral is that. Like if you had actually read the Twitter thread, the the kind of the thrust of my argument was that like this isn't enough. <laughs> was that like implicit bias training? It's not that there's not a problem that this a real problem that this is trying to solve. It was that you know I think we need more structural solutions. I think you know we need to invest more resources in implicit bias training. And and you know the state of the evidence at the time wasn't super strong in favor of this. But what was interesting is that there were, and I think a good number of people who were sort of engaging with that Twitter thread got it, but there, you know, there were people who were also kind of latching on were like, yeah, this whole implicit bias thing is stupid. You know, uh, um, this is all just the, you know, PC, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and it was kind of funny because that was actually like, I got a lot of followers out of that. And I have a feeling like when those followers, I probably lost, a, like, I probably had this big uptick. And then over the ensuing weeks and months, when they found out what I actually believe, like, through following me on Twitter, I suspect a lot of them disappeared or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that that's a real thing. And it's it's hard to, you know, it, it can be hard to make these kind of um, nuanced kinds of arguments um, where, you know, whether it's about replicability or whether it's just about sort of soundness of conclusions in general. Um, I think, you know, stereotype threat is another, I think, really interesting example where there is, there's a set of open questions about whether and for whom and under what circumstances um, inducing, uh, you know, inducing stereotype threat will affect performance. And it might be performance on tests, it might be performance on other things. And, and there's, I know that there's a, a, I think it's, there's a multi-lab project, at, I can't remember if it's through the accelerator or something else, that's sort of in progress, looking at this question. But people often jump on questions that have been raised about stereotype threat, because they want to make some larger point about like, you know, whiny PC yeah, people. Right. And, and it's like, that's, and, and in really sort of callous and infuriating ways, people will pick up on, on these replication arguments to kind of um, grind a much larger axe than they have any justification to be grinding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's one sort of, maybe one argument against this idea that like, if we sometimes collect weak evidence or some evidence for something that this is better than collecting none like the the sort of like foundation of social psych um was yeah a lot of a lot of findings that were meant to make like a social point um and now that we have some reason to be skeptical of some of that research i feel like what's ending up happening is not just that like people feel like we're going back to neutral ground where we don't have empirical evidence about these questions it's like 
there's like this backlash where it's like the evidence that you collected that says that we should worry about stereotypes and racism and blah, blah, blah is wrong. And therefore those things are not problems, Um, which is kind of scary. Yeah, it's interesting that the blame for the backlash is being laid at the feet of the people who pointed out the flaws with the research. I mean, it makes sense. I get why. But like you could also imagine a world where people who are upset about the backlash, which I am too, would say, well, yeah, like what you just said, kind of like if you hadn't done shoddy research on this important topic in the first place, we might not be in this situation. But instead, what a lot of people think is like if the critics hadn't found the flaws in this research, then we wouldn't be in this situation. Right, right, um, right. Exactly. But both are true. Right. So, and I, you know, part part of this is that I, I feel like the in a lot of in a lot of different directions, the the giveaway is selectivity, selectivity of arguments. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, if if we're going to that that sort of yeah. that idea from Lupia that I mentioned earlier about like this is the form of argument if we're going to talk about this you have to be making your arguments in this form the the giveaway is when somebody's using it selectively when mm-hmm. they're saying I don't want to believe you know I, I don't want to believe you know their implicit bias training works fine whatever you you know you're not persuaded by that evidence but then they're not approaching like a scientist the question of whether there is social inequality in the workplace Mm -hmm. right and and all of a sudden it like their their high evidentiary bar disappears when it you know when it's some other point that that they want to that they want to make and and i think that that's i think the answer has to be that that you know if we're going to say the these are important bases to to you know ha- this is how we think about evidence this is what we consider like useful and credible evidence and what we don't and this is what we consider good arguments and what we don't the the answer the response from people that want to make science better it has to be to insist that the critics can't be or that the the bad faith people can't be using that so selectively and to call them out on it right yeah i agree with the point about selectivity but i also think that there is one position that's not selective but still worries me which is is the like skepticism of science like the of the idea of science so like one thing that does worry me and maybe maybe are the times that I could get on board with like a march for science or something like that is just the idea that like science is not a tool for informing us about the world and that's that's scary to me because if you sort of dismiss science as a way to answer some of the questions that we have then then you're left with nothing right like many of the questions that we have are empirical questions that require evidence to be properly answered and i'm not saying that that evidence is necessarily easy to gather or that we are necessarily coming up with satisfying answers but it's not satisfying to me to say like okay well we can still like talk about this question without relying on science but do you think i'm curious and it would be interesting to study this empirically whether failed replications, criticisms of scientific practices and incentive structures and all that have changed anyone's mind at that fundamental of a level. So I do believe that these things, the like very interested non-scientists who know about these things, which is a very, very small group of people, but for them, I believe that their trust in science as it is now has gone down probably as a result of hearing about these things, which is Mm -hmm. maybe appropriate. I doubt 
many, if any of them, have switched from believing science in principle is a good way to go about trying to produce knowledge to thinking, oh, let's actually give up on that and like try intuition instead or religion or whatever. Right. So I think that people who are anti-science at that deep of a level are going to be anti-science anyway. And maybe they can use this stuff in their recruitment, but I doubt it's making that big of a difference in their recruitment. Yeah, I I guess that's what I was imagining with somebody like that using this. Um, yeah, to try to convince other people, but, but maybe those are not the people who are using this anyway. I think some of them are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a couple of cases of like institutions that I think are pretty much anti-science at that deep of a level using the replicability crisis and related criticisms, um, as like propaganda for their position. I just don't know how effective it is. I think if someone is, is swayable by the evidence from the applicability crisis, then they already believe in evidence to some extent, right? And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, these scientists are critiquing science using science, and I believe their arguments, so now I'm not going to believe in science anymore. <laughs> like, right. It seems like a yeah. very far leap. Like, I do think they're going to believe science less, and I think they should to some extent, but I don't know if they'd go all the way to being like, let's give up on science as a way of knowing things. I feel like this is one of those right. cases that happen a lot where the the purpose of engaging with people isn't necessarily to persuade the people you're engaging with Mm -hmm. especially because there can be value even in engaging with bad faith actors when there's an audience right and so the the, you know i think there are the people the worst offenders in using arguments selectively are yeah there are people who they're just going to be racist and they're just using it so selectively because it's an argument of convenience and if this wasn't happening they'd find something else right or they're just and maybe it's not i mean the the letter was about diversity initiatives and race but you know whatever it is they just don't want to believe it um and so they're going to find whatever they can find and so the the engaging with them, and that's where like choosing your venue and thinking about your audience and how you frame your argument is really important because the people watching can recognize that like oh this who who are like it's the people who they're 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 not you know they're not invested in either side but they can kind of see it happening and they can you know it often is apparent like oh this person on this side caught this person on that side in a contradiction or showed that they're being hypocritical or showed that they're being selective. Mm-hmm. Um, and people can recognize that even if they don't understand all the technical issues and, and so forth. And so I think that's why, and it also has the benefit of communicating that, yes, we are being consistent about how we use these concepts mm-hmm. that we're saying, like, we have to, if we're going to, if we're going to say like, you know, there are circumstances under which evidence has to be replicable in order to be useful. We're going to apply that logic everywhere it shows, everywhere it's relevant, right? If, if that's what you're saying, mm-hmm. and people can recognize you doing that, and they can recognize you calling someone else out for not doing that. And that heuristic of like an intellectually consistent argument is better than a hypocritical one mm-hmm. will resonate with the onlookers. And so I think that's, it's, it's worth engaging when it's, but you, you you pick your moments. You make it public. You make it a forum where you'll be able to get your views and your critiques out um, where it's not dominated by the other side or full of their cheering onlookers and not like an actual audience worth talking to. Yeah. Good. One thing that the letter writer mentioned was this idea that people feel like um, 
it's frequently diversity related issues that are like brought up in these critiques or whatever. Um, and I was curious whether that's what your experience has been too. So like, are people most often using these arguments to undermine diversity related stuff or is it like just whatever psychological finding they don't like? Well, I think classically the biggest one is climate change. Like I think whenever okay. there's a an argument, or there's new evidence about science not being imperfect or flawed or whatever, I think the biggest place that gets used as ammunition is in the climate change debate. So I think whatever is controversial and politicized right now, if if the arguments for those policies are based on science, then when there's a criticism of science, then the people who don't like those policies are going to use that. So I think, okay. but I do think the fact that social psych is in the eye of the storm is really also right. related. Like obviously social psych has historically tried to study social problems and how to fix them and things like that. And so when that knowledge base gets questioned and undermined, then I think it's going to affect those issues a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how to answer the question of when it's most often. Cause I don't know what the sort of like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the like universe is that I'm sampling from or whatever, but I think that there is something that's, that's a common theme between climate change and kind of diversity issues and, and sort of, you know, uh, um, racial and gender and other biases and those kinds of things. There, there's a sort of common thread of issues where there's a, a vested group with a lot of power being threatened or being challenged, right? And so that's, that's the case with climate change, where you have very powerful interests that want to keep making money off of, you know, uh, petroleum and, and so forth. And, and that's the case, I think, with a lot of discussions around race and gender and other marginalized groups where they, these marginalized groups are threatening, threatening, quote unquote. In other words, they're, they're sort of, you know, might be unseating privileges and power of, of some groups. And so that's where, you know, the, the more powerful groups often as part of having power, you know, can drag it into a really big fight. They often have the visibility because they're using that to their advantage to, to make these very visible fights um, and so, yeah, so that's, I, I do think that there, there are, you know, there are ways that we're responsible for understanding the context in which these arguments are playing out that we, you know, we can't just make them as these kind of like abstract, dry, dusty academic arguments. We have to understand like in the same way that, you know, if you are a, if you study any two of three things, um, social inequality, intelligence, and genetics. Take any two of those. You have to understand that there's a world of racists who are going to take, who are going to be looking for an opportunity to take whatever you say Mm -hmm. and, and make a racist argument out of it. And you see, so you see people who are, you know, who do behavior genetics research, for example, you know, a lot of the, the, you know, a lot of them are very careful and thoughtful and responsible about how they talk about their work because it's just if you're doing that kind of work you have to be aware of all these ways people are like poised to grab it and misinterpret it and so i I do feel like there's there's some responsibility and i i I have seen people in the open science movement not everybody obviously but but quite a lot of people really embracing that responsibility Mm -hmm. and i think we need to encourage that and 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 help those people not only that but i think a lot of the criticisms 
and pointing out flaws and methods and incentives and lack of transparency has been used and can be used and should be used also to um, challenge and reverse well-established quote-unquote scientific findings that are unfair mm-hmm. and unjust. And so I think mm-hmm. methods critiques about like a lot of medical research not looking at entire subpopulations and not knowing mm-hmm. about the side effects of medicine for certain groups or things like that. Like a lot of that is in the same spirit as the replicability reforms of saying like, mm-hmm. Hey, you're misrepresenting your results or um, things like that. So I think we should encourage the use of methodological critique towards greater truth. And that shouldn't be seen as only working against social justice. It can work for social justice as well. Right, yeah. That was, by the way, listeners, that was thunder and lightning. Wow. Um, so uh, I could see, I saw the like the flash <laughs> behind Alexa. So this is in, in Alabama. Oh, I thought uh, it was in Oregon. Um, I was like, wow, thunder and lightning in Oregon. No, no, no. It's it's like bright and sunny and 100 degrees. And by the way, I'm wearing pants, not shorts. Anyway. I um, just changed. When I told you guys I was going to go to the bathroom before we started recording, I actually was changing into shorts. <laughs> uh, but I no, I think I think this is clearly like divine agreement with whatever point Sweden was just making. Um, the Zeus was throwing down a thunderbolt in in support of uh, is that integrating are those lightning justice. bolts usually supportive lightning bolts? Um, I to me it's like hot damn yeah like you know, let me throw this like the flames bolt on Twitter when so when you tweet something and people are like flames yeah <laughs> that's a good yeah. thing right. <laughs> I, I choose to interpret all of this as, uh, as, as support for what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> but I think one thing this says to me is that we, like, we really need to re- repeat and reinforce this idea that rigorous methods are orthogonal to whatever message right. a person is using them. I mean, you can use, you can use methodological arguments to make, <coughs> excuse me make a claim for a certain political position or policy or whatever. That's science is in part for that, but it's orthogonal and it can be used for, to argue for policies you like. It can be used to argue for policies you don't like. And the more we have a plurality of people who are high on the dimension of caring about rigor and accuracy and calibration and credibility, but have very many different diverse views and preferences and values about policies, the more that'll get decoupled in people's minds as it should be that there isn't, Open like open science and transparency and replicability are not for one agenda or one cause or another. Yeah, and I also I think something that um, because of because of this issue of you know the 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 fact that like people are prone to use these arguments selectively and powerful groups have more visibility when they do that is that I think it can have an effect of sometimes making the people who actually do care about fairness and who care about justice and who care about diversity, who are part of the open science movement, who care about that, it can, it can make them look less visible. So, you know, my, my experience, um, you know, and, and this is especially relevant when you move from Twitter to like face-to-face conversations, right? Cause Twitter is like all about like a small number of high visibility people being highly visible, like, you know, the, the, you know, just network effects work that way. But when you, you know, when, when I go to a SIPS conference or when I am at another kind of conference or when I'm talking to people in my department about open science, like the, this idea that like, yeah, there are highly visible examples of people badly in bad faith and selectively using open science to argue, to try to advance racism and misogyny. But that's, 
my experience and obviously like it's this is anecdotal and whatever but my experience is i don't see that in terms of who's actually engaged with and cares yeah, about right. open science well, and i think it's really it's it's really important not to ignore the people that are using it badly but it's also really important to support the people that care about both of these things and want them to work for each other i've been told sometimes on the same day by different people that everybody in the reform movement thinks X or has value X on, in opposite directions. So <laughs> at the very least, that can't be true. <laughs> um, right. But I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of assumptions being made in, and, and painting everyone with the same brush. But actually, yeah, it is an incredibly diverse movement and on all dimensions, including political and social and so on. Mm-hmm. It's the, I think it's a good replication of the outgroup homogeneity effect, yeah, right. right? Like if those people over there, they all agree the same thing. And since they're the outgroup, they all agree on whatever I don't believe. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah. So I have, like I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Alexa. No, you go. Ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to ask a hypothetical question. Let's say there was like an anti-science person, maybe they're like anti-vax or whatever, but just generally they think science is stupid and isn't worth even trying and they want to debate. Do you think that if 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 they were going to debate on like the most popular channel ever and tons and tons of people are going to watch, not necessarily only highly educated people or informed people or whatever, and they could debate either a super like replicability reformist who thinks there are a lot of problems in science right now, but still believes in science or a more traditionalist who thinks science is working super well and there's no problems and all that who who should they debate if the goal is to get the public to not despair but not necessarily be deluded in the positive direction but not despair about science like who would do better in a debate against an anti-science person like i i think given if the format allows for enough time for people to explain their positions, you know, if this was going to be like a, you know, yeah, yeah. If, if you actually have the space, I, I have enough faith in people's bullshit detectors and people's ability to see through when they're being sold something that's not quite yeah. as shiny as it's being made to look that I would, I would go with the person that's being making an honest case for how science is supposed to work, acknowledging the fact that it doesn't always work that way and is still able to say, but right. fucking vaccinate your children. And I think that there's so much conspiracy. I mean, if we're talking about it like anti-vax, but with a lot of these things, there's so much conspiratorial thinking and, and you're not going to win over the super conspiracy-minded people, but like in some ways, like papering over any possible tiny shortcoming in science like helps the conspiracy theorists yeah. because that's their whole thing right, right. It's, it, this is what you were saying earlier Samin is like th- that's that's their argument is that we're hiding things and so so if you are trying to represent that position by papering things over you're in some ways like you're not helping your position right I think like you can gain strength in an argument by admitting some like weaknesses in your side but then standing by the strong points of your side right so like i'm imagining and this is sort of related to what you said earlier samin about likely um the people who are like 
the replicability people who are critical of science still believe in the idea of science, right? And so I'm imagining this person um, believes deeply in science as an idea, um, but is also like aware of the flaws in, in the ways in which science is implemented. And that just, that, I mean, I think I just feel like that sounds like a stronger argument because it's truer and it sounds more persuasive, yeah, than like a, a glossier version. That ultimately has I also, holes. I also think it's the case that uh, things like climate change or things like vaccines actually are incredibly open because they've been so controversial. Mm-hmm. That 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 is actually like the the you know climate scientists are you know have really embodied that spirit that Lupia was talking about, where like they are very open with their data and their arguments and their algorithms and everything else. Um, because they've been challenged so much. And and so I think some of the most controversial things like that actually are a really great case to defend when science is done the way it's supposed to, it's incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I I, I mean, I I don't know enough of the technicalities of of climate stuff to like walk onto a stage right now and have that debate, but I'm I'm confident from having observed it that like that's that's the way they're approaching it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's this idea that if you admit the flaws in science and think that there's a lot of problems stuff that hamstrings your ability to win that debate with the anti-science person to defend mm-hmm. science against unfair attacks. But I think, I mean, obviously, you know where my, where I stand, that I think it actually puts you in a better position to debate those people. And I think for the, but it does require what you said, Sanjay, that it requires a, a higher level of respect for your audience, right? If you, if you start mm-hmm. with the assumption that your audience can't handle any nuance or any complexity or whatever and wants science to be perfect otherwise they won't they'll give up on it then yeah if you start admitting flaws you'll lose them but if you can entertain the possibility that your audience can handle um, nuance and I mean I think there was a Pew survey that came out recently and one of the questions was like do you think that medical researchers and medical doctors admit when they're wrong and correct their mistakes and disclose conflicts of interest and things like that? I don't remember the exact wording but and only like 11 to 17 percent of respondents said yes um so clearly most people at least americans don't think that at least medical researchers are noble objective Mm -hmm. truth-seeking saints so i don't think we're gonna lose them if we admit that that's the case and um i think yeah it's it's a sign of respect i think for the non-scientists to think that maybe they can handle the fact that we have pretty big flaws and still Mm -hmm. consider our pitch for gaining their respect and giving us a chance. Well, so uh, do you guys have any regrets that we need to edit <laughs> yeah. out of this episode? <laughs> Maybe the spider story? <laughs> I, I, I regret, regret listening hearing to that. that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have, we, have we covered our main topic? Are we, are we good? Yeah, I think so. Maybe I'll pitch um, one of the things that also made me think about this topic was the book The Hidden Half, which Julia mm-hmm. Rohr recommended on Twitter and a friend of Fiona Fiddler's also recommended to me and after several recommendations I finally picked it up. I haven't gotten very far in it, but it it talks touches on these issues a bit too, so we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Cool. Well thanks everybody for listening. This has been the Black Goat. We're happy to be back after our hiatus and hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.